Rise and shine, liberty-loving patriots. Welcome to the Chris Ann Hall Daily Journal. Chris Ann Hall here, K-R-I-S-A-N-N-E-H-A-L-L.com, where we are liberty over security, principle over party, and truth over your favorite personality. It's just me tonight, guys. I'm going to do a little bit something that we do every now and again. Remember, we are a teach show and not a talk show. And so what I'm going to do today is we're going to have a little bit more of a teachy show than a talky show. I get really irritated by these CRT idiots running around talking about how we need to have an honest, a deeper survey on the const on history, a deeper survey on the constitution. But what that really means, if you translate it into CRT language, what it means is uh, we want to rewrite the Constitution, we want to rewrite history, and we want to feed it back to you in such a way that you will believe lies about who you are and where you came from and, and how this all works. So today, today we're going to do something different. We're going to talk about wisdom and truth. And this inspiration kind of came to me um, when I was teaching today, uh, uh, today or yesterday at our college, the river school of government. If you want to know more about the river school of government, you can go to riverschoolofgovernment.com and, uh, then you, you have all of these, the information that you need there. We do August intake. So if you're interested in, in becoming a strong and godly leader in your community, that's what we're raising up. It's not, it's not so you have to run for government. It's not even so that you have to work in government. It's so that you can learn the proper way to function in our constitutional republic. So think about it, pray about it. If that's something that you want to do, you can get more info here, submit an inquiry uh, to our River School of Government. But JC and I are teaching there. And as I was teaching, as I often do, I teach from also from material that we have at libertyfirstuniversity.com. So there's another teaching uh, place for you. Uh, libertyfirstuniversity.com. See, these are really easy. Riverschoolofgovernment.com, libertyfirstuniversity.com. And so we have tons and tons of education for you in liberty, worthy of the highest institutions of learning, as if the founders themselves were teaching it. And so today, today, Chrisanne puts on her reading glasses and shares with you the words of the founders themselves. Now, what I want to do first and foremost is sort of give you a little bit of a historical background. Because you see, so many people have the um, founders on their lips and they want to ascribe to America's founders the kind of conduct that they would be engaging in today, given today's government. And then people know because I teach history and that I'm always teaching that history always repeats. They're always asking me, Chrisanne, where are we in the timeline of the repetition of history of our founders era? 
And so I want to do some training with you. This is a teaching class. I promise it's not a boring class because history in the uh, Daily Journal, history at Liberty First University, history at the River School of Government is never, ever boring. Okay? Never, ever boring. That's what progressive leftist Marxists do to history. They intentionally make it boring so that you don't want to learn about it. And so we, we bring life to the history that you need to know about because history always repeats. Now, what I want to do is I want to sort of start with you. This is actually a letter that Samuel Adams has posted in the Boston Gazette on the 27th of February, 1769. Thank you. Hey, guys, that's a really great thing. Thank you, John, for sharing this. Right now, why don't you guys go and share this on your social media pages. You can share it on your YouTube channel. You can share it on Twitch. You can share it on Facebook and help us get this truth out. Hit that thumbs up while we're doing some, some, um, things housekeeping here Hit that thumbs up, hit that subscribe button, ring that bell and give us some momentum. So what we have is a letter from Samuel Adams to the Boston Gazette, 27th of February, 1769. No, not 1969, not 1869, 1769. Oh, <laughs> Richard Kramer calling me the incant in incarnation of James Otis Jr. Well, that is a huge honor, Richard, but I, I, I just... I, I will, I will receive that compliment, but I, I don't, I don't think that I believe that I am at that level, but thank you so much. I will receive that compliment very graciously. And so in 1769, as Samuel Adams is writing this letter and, and posting it in the Boston Gazette, I want to give you a short history of what leads up to this 1769 letter. Because so many people today, first and foremost, they think that all of this tyranny just happened overnight as if the Biden administration invented tyranny or maybe the, the Democrats invented out-of-control government or the cabal, right? The cabal today invented this globalist agenda. All right. So none of these things are actually true because you see, there is nothing new under the sun. Anybody here remember that guy Solomon? That's what he said. There is nothing new under the sun. Human nature never changes. If you're in the audience right now, get ready with your little emoji button. Put your hand up if you will admit that you have made the same stupid mistake more than once in your life, right? So here we have it, guys. Same stupid mistakes over and over again. That's what individuals do. Well, that's what we do in society as well. And in society, it's even worse because those mistakes are compounded. That's why we have to learn history. That's why those in charge of education who are also in charge of government power and all the strings they create don't want you to learn history because history is the tool that keeps people 
from making the same mistakes. So that's what we want to do here. We want to learn from history. Look at all these hands going up, guys. All the honest people out there. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we don't have to repeat history. Well, put it this way. We don't have to repeat the bad stuff in history. We can make a difference. That's one of the things that our founders did, by the way. They chose to learn history and not repeat the mistakes of their fathers, right? They said, you know what? 1776, let's do something different. How about we try no more kings, right? That's all we've known for over, let's see, it's 1776. That would be 1100, no, 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 900 years. 900 years is, no, 1100, 600, 600 AD. 1100 years, all we've known is kings. So let's do something different. Let's not have kings. What do you say? Good idea? All right. So let's see how this happens. I'm going to take you over now to a Liberty First University class. And I'm going to take you just briefly through a Liberty First University class and the material that I use at the River School of Government as well. So we start our history with the Navigation Act of 1660. 1660. Remember, Samuel Adams' letter to the Boston Gazette of 1769 is the subject of our lesson today. So a hundred years prior to that, the tyranny of the American on the American colonies begins. And it begins with this thing called the Navigation Act. Now, the Navigation Act is something that the king imposes on the American colonies as a way to pay back the debt of the charters to get these people into America. So that's what we're doing. And what he does is he starts by locking down commerce. I want you guys to catch this. The king starts by locking down commerce. What does he do? He starts mandating that all purchases be made through government-approved merchants. So what we're creating, public-private partnerships, we're creating government-created monopolies, we're shielding corporations from, from fair market system and mandating that people have a commercial system that is favorable to the to the government and favorable to the government's cronies. Now you have to know, I'm not talking about 2021. I'm talking about 1660. Why? Because history always repeats. There's really only a very few things that those in power will do. And they do them over and over again, but they're able to keep us in the same rut, repeating the same mistakes because we don't take this time to learn our history. So what happens then is that the founders start waking up, right? So 1660, they're not paying attention to what's going on. 
Why are they not paying attention? Because it's 1660, the colonies are fledgling, brand new, and if you know anything about that period of history, the only thing on the minds of these American colonists is surviving. This is a land they've never been to before. This is a whole new way of life. They're wholly unprepared for the hardships that they're finding. So right now, government is not on their mind. They're paying attention only to surviving. They're not paying attention to the fact that the English government is violating the English Constitution and creating laws to be enforced on the American colonists beyond their consent. They're not paying attention. They're just, they're like eyes on, focused, surviving, right? So what comes next? Well, what comes next is we get 60 years later the American people are now settled in. They're now beginning to survive. They can now pay attention to other things. They're dealing with their environment. They're dealing with what's going on. They're settled in. They have homes. They have farms. There's, you know, and they're just living life. So now they're able to look up from the field, look up from their battle for survival, and start watching what's going on. And now they're beginning to realize hey, wait a minute. We haven't been paying attention the last 60 years. And the last 60 years, while we haven't been paying attention, the government has been taking advantage of our inattentiveness, taking advantage of our lack of responsive control of government, our lack of using our voice. So, They've been taking advantage of our complacency and our distractions. Look what they've been doing and destroying our rights. And now they're starting to wake up. Now they're starting to talk to each other. And now they're starting to educate each other. Right? So yes, Taryn, we've had 60 years of not paying attention. But now, now we're starting to think. Maybe we don't quite know, but starting to think something's wrong here. So now what happens is we have the certain people who are the holders of the knowledge who are great teachers, who are anointed to deliver truth, and they're writing letters and they're publishing them to educate everyone else around them. They're the ones that see what's happening. They're the ones that see what's going on wrong. And so now they're going to put pen to paper and start teaching people. But take notice here. They're still not signing their names. Still not signing their names. Because you see, truth is tyranny to tyrants. That's why Benjamin Franklin says this as silence do good in 1722. Listen to this. That men ought to speak well of their governors is true, while their governors deserve to be well spoken of. 
But to do public mischief without hearing of it is only the power and foolishness of tyranny. A free a people, a free people will show that they are so by their freedom of speech. By their freedom of speech. This is amazing. You not only have you not only have Franklin writing, you also have Trenchard and his crew tied writing the Cato letters. And they're writing to instruct people on their rights. Now, I want you to pay a close look. I can actually see some of the things that are happening in the chat room, and I see some of the things that you're saying. So I want you to do me a favor. I want you to set aside your preconceived notions about when the fall of America began. All right. Don't assign a townfall, a, a time of the downfalling of America in your mind. I want you to take what we're teaching here today, follow the timeline in history, and then develop an understanding on your own based on what you're learning today as to when the tyranny began in America. Because you see, the, the tendency is in, in American psyche today is, oh, it's 1913. That's when America fell. No, it's not. It actually happened a lot sooner than that. So let's just pay attention to the lesson today and see how it goes, right? Everybody agree? All right, super. So Trenchard and the Cato writers are writing in the 1720s and, and uh, Franklin is writing a silence, do good. And he's telling us we should talk good about government while they're deserving to be talked good of. But if you are silent about bad government, then you are proving you are not free. He says, freedom of speech, this sacred privilege is so essential to free governments that the security of property and the freedom of speech always go together. And in those wretched countries where a man cannot call his tongue his own, he can scarce call anything else his own. Who, whoever would overthrow the liberty of a nation must begin by subduing the freeness of speech, a thing terrible to public traders. So I want us to understand what we have now. A people 60 years after the tyranny is setting in. Now it's not the beginning of tyranny, right? Because they still have a king. If you want to count backwards, you probably are going to have to go back to the beginning of kings. And that's when tyranny begins, right? So we have 1660, the Navigation Act, we have 1720, the people are starting to get educated. There is an awakening happening in 1720. The people are starting to look around and going, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, what do we need to know? What do we need to do? How our government is going crazy. How do we fix this? Watch this. At the beginning, the spark is being lit. The people are thinking. These letters are being written. The education is coming out. Then lo and behold, coincidentally, 
the American colonies find themselves in a war. Yes, quite conveniently for the tyrants who don't like the education that's being given, and to the silencing of the people, we have the French and Indian War, 1754. So we have 30 years of people, lots of talk, lots of people are beginning to get motivated. They're beginning to get educated. And then all of a sudden, boom, war, war changes everything. It's a distraction. It gets people off of their rights and starts looking to government again. Oh my goodness. We've got a crisis. I don't need to be worrying about my rights. I need to be worried about my safety. I need to be worried about my security. Go ahead. I will relinquish some of my rights just so I can be safe. How convenient at a time of enlightenment when the people are beginning to become aware of their government again, aware of the, of the, uh, the, the violations of their rights. Boom. We're in a war and we have a distraction and we have a, a desire to be loyal to the king. You got to be loyal to the king. You got to be loyal to the government during a war because we have a common enemy. And guess what? Just like 1660, we are distracted again. So what happens? I wanted to share something with you. Thomas Paine said this. He said, all of history shows what we know from Great Britain that taxes are not raised to pay for wars. Wars are raised to create taxes. Wars are raised to make people pay taxes, right? Because it gives them an excuse. You can't. Of course you have to pay your taxes now. We have to fund our freedom. We have to fund our security. And so now what you have is the government distracting the people and creating wars. So now what we have as we move forward, remember we're getting up to 1769. As the distraction of the war moves away, the re-enlightenment, the, re the, the, the restart of the enlightenment begins, right? In 1760, we're way down here. And then, and 60 years later, we're waking up. Now, all of a sudden, it's 1722, and the education is coming, and we're like, Phew, we're way up here now. Well, now we have a war. Our interest in liberty is down. But I wanted to show you this illustration with my hands because we didn't start back down at 1660 levels. We maybe just dropped a few notches. So when the distraction of the war is over, we're able to actually start at a higher point of enlightenment and leap off into a bigger thing, in, into a stronger movement. And from there, remember, we've got mandated purchases, government-created monopolies, a taxation system that cannot be avoided because it's against the law 
to purchase things that are not taxed. That's part of the, the law now. We have to have all these taxes because of the French and Indian War, right? The French and Indian War has doubled the national debt. And so now we have to collect all that because national debt is a threat to national security. Let me just say that. That's not propaganda, by the way. When people say that national debt is a threat to national security, that's actually true. Because when you have a debt, the person that you owe owns you. If you have a credit card, Discover card, Discover owns you until you pay that off. If you have a mortgage, the mortgage the mortgage holder owns your house until you pay it off. Well, if your country is at debt, then other countries, you owe other countries money. And if one country owns owes another country money, then that other country owns you. That's a terrible, terrible threat. And yeah, you're absolutely right now. That's why we're in continuous war. So that we can continuously tax and continuously keep the American people distracted from what's really, really important, the rights of the people. So the French and Windian War is now over. And the people are awakened. Again, back on the lines of enlightenment to their liberty, a reconnection to their inalienable God-given rights. And so you know what they do this time? It's not just education, it's organization, right? So what they do is they start their own commerce. I call it the Liberty Chamber of Commerce. So the Liberty Chamber of Commerce now is a commercial system of of every part of commerce that is refusing to participate in the mandated commerce of the government. No, we're not going to just purchase from English ships. No, we're not going to participate in your unlawful taxation. Remember, your mandate of our purchases was made without our consent. Your taxes are made without our consent. Your restrictions are made without our consent. Your regulations are made without our consent. So guess what? We are going to organize and we are going to not comply with your rules. Our whole commerce system is going to be outside government-mandated commerce. Yes, there'll be threats. Yes, there'll be business owners threatened by government. Yes, there'll be people who may even get arrested. But the community is coming together to organize based on the education about liberty that they've received. And this is now in the 1759s. So in 1760, the British government responding to the organization of the people in the alternative commerce, they passed this law called writs of assistance. Now these writs of assistance, another law passed without their representation, another law passed without their consent, But now these writs of assistance also violate their constitution as arbitrary searches and seizures that deny the American colonists their right to due process, that deny the American colonists their right to checks and balances. 
And the people begin to really see face to face what our founder, what, what tyranny was. This is no more, no longer just people complaining. This is no more people just wondering and educating. These are people who are seriously listening and watching and experiencing firsthand what tyranny is. Because you see, these government agents are raiding people's homes on this tyranny of writs of assistance and then stealing from them whatever they want. These government agents with no checked power are raiding homes and businesses and stealing whatever they want. Not only that, they're seizing our wives and daughters, just to say that delicately. Right? So, 1760, the raids begin. Less than a year later. Well, let me just back up just a little bit. Right on the cusp of this, there's a man named James Otis Jr. This is the guy that Richard Kramer was talking about. James Otis Jr., meet him. That's James. He was an attorney for the British crown who had received the highest post that anybody in the British government could, an attorney in the British government could receive. And it was his job to ensure that the laws of the crown were enforced and that the those who violated those laws were properly prosecuted. Now, Otis was trained not only in the law, but in the English Constitution and the liberties, natural rights of the people. So he knew these writs of assistance were a direct violation, not only of the English Constitution, but also a direct violation of the natural rights of the people. So as this highest authority who's enforcing the law as his job says, I can't do my job anymore. I can't do this. This is a violation of everything right before God and everything right in English constitution and law. As a matter of fact, he calls it the worst instruments of arbitrary power, the most destructive of English liberty and the fundamental principles of law that was ever found in an English law book. And here's where James Otis Jr., becomes as his fellow colonist claim, he becomes the midwife to liberty. Because you see, some businessmen go to James and they say, James, we know you've quit your job, right? He James has resigned his post. He said, I can't do this job anymore. I can't enforce these laws anymore. They're too much of a violation. I can't do this in good conscience. And James starts writing letters. He starts issuing posts. He starts teaching whoever, and I mean whoever, will stop and listen to whatever he has to say for a few minutes. And word gets around that Otis is taking a stand. Now, he's not doing it as a pseudonym like the Cato letters. He's not doing it under pseudonym like uh, Benjamin Franklin and Silence Do Good. He's physically standing up with his name, his body, his reputation, his voice, and saying, regardless of the consequences, I'm going to speak truth. The first man to do this publicly 
James Otis Jr. And so here's the thing. James is approached by two businessmen that says, say to him, if we don't get these agents under control, everything is lost. So they go to James and they say, will you help us take up a case against these outrageous laws, these outrageous agents? And Otis agrees. Now, what's really interesting is the minute Otis agrees to take this case, the British government conveniently forgets that Otis has resigned his post. They charge him with the crime of abandoning his post, which is treason, which means he could be shot on sight. Remember, Otis says, I don't care. Regardless of the consequences, I am determined to proceed. With his life on the line, with his reputation on the line, with everything he knows and loves, his family on the line, Otis says, I'm going to take a stand. And this is where our history lesson today begins. Because as the first man to take a stand, James Otis Jr. will light the flame that will ignite the passion of liberty in these people we call our founders. Because yes, in February of 1761, Samuel Adams was alive, so was George Washington, so was Patrick Henry, so were all the people we refer to as being founders. The problem is they were just people. They weren't leaders. They weren't people fighting. There were no sons of liberty in 1761. There were no committees of correspondence in 1761. There was no real organized movement to liberty other than the Chamber of Commerce that was creating commerce outside the British government-mandated commercial system. And in that courtroom that day, listening to the passion of James Otis Jr., Liberty was sown, and the beginning of our battle for independence was ignited. If you want to learn more about James Otis Jr., can I encourage you, please go take classes at libertyfirstuniversity.com. We have several classes where we go in greater detail. It is important for you to know this, but on this teach show, I simply don't have the time to give you the whole story of James. They called him the midwife to liberty because without his courage, we would still could possibly still be British today. Because in that courtroom that day, as James was arguing, Samuel Adams was there, John Adams was there, and the men who would become our founders was there. Out of that courtroom that day, the committees of correspondence were born. Now, that was 1761. Samuel Adams, James Warren, Doc, uh, uh, James Otis Jr. begin organizing the committees of correspondence after that court date. And the first meeting is held three years later in 1764. You see, listen to this. The committees of correspondence were created to be educational groups to disseminate truth 
to prevent the perverting, prevent the government from perverting the judgment of men. Are you catching that? To prevent the government from perverting the judgment of men. You see, the uniting of our government and the media propaganda machine is not new. Look at what look at what Benjamin uh, sorry, look at what Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1807. He said in a letter, nothing can now be believed which is seen in a newspaper. Truth itself becomes suspicious by being put into that polluted vehicle. In 1807 Thomas Jefferson is talking about fake news. But let's go back now just to remind you, 1764 is when Samuel Adams gets everybody organized and starts teaching throughout the colonies the truth about liberty and the truth about the English Constitution, the truth about learning from history, and the proper course of action for the people. So now what we're going to do is we are going to go to our document, Samuel Adams' letter to the Boston Gazette. Now, I'm not going to read it all the way through in one bite. We're going to be stopping along the way because I want us to take note of certain things. It is 1769. The first shot is not going to be fired for another year. The Boston Massacre will not occur for another year. And the Declaration of Independence is seven years away. So let's look. Ready? Samuel Adams, the Boston Gazette, 27 February, 1769. In the days of the Stuarts. Now, the Stuarts are a, a line of kings. Okay, so if here, here's here's a little backdrop. Those of you, raise your hand. Those, go ahead, get your little emojis ready. Raise your hand in the audience if you have taken my course uh, at Liberty First University on the history of the Constitution. Because if you haven't, if you have, this is going to mean so much more to you. Okay. If you go to libertyfirstuniversity.com, you can actually take this genealogy of the Constitution at your own time at no cost. We, we give you this as a free course. The history of the Constitution, you can take it now as a training tool. But don't do it right now because we're watching the show right now, right? So once you finish with this show, Look at all those hands raised that have seen the the history of the Constitution. Look at look at all these Liberty First University students. You guys are so awesome. So listen, this is going to mean more to you because you'll remember the kings, right? And so, yes, Spartacus will be waiting to see you at Liberty First University. It's going to be great. All right, here we go. Ready? Got to put my, my cheaters on here. In the days of the Stuarts, it was looked upon by some men as a high degree of profaneness for any subject to inquire into what was called the mysteries of government. I'll explain that to you in just a second. 
James the first thundering in his an an anathema, sorry, right, his anathema against Dr. Cowell for his daring presumption in treating of those miseries and forbade his subjects to read his books or even to keep them in their houses. Now, this is James the first, okay? James the first is a profane, vile king. And James the first is seeing an, an education happening in his kingdom because right now James the first wants everybody to believe in what they call, uh, what, what Adams calls his an anathema, um, and his, his, uh, mysteries of government. The mysteries are mysteries of spiritual government. Okay. So, James the first is engaging in a propaganda mission to teach the colonists of England that the king is God or, you know, close enough that you can't tell the difference. It's called divine right. And the whole propaganda, the whole, um, what's, what's the word that I'm looking for here? Doctrine of prop of divine right teaches, listen very closely because you're going to find this very familiar. The doctrine of divine right teaches that to disobey the king and to question government is to disobey and question God himself. You might think, oh, well, that was kings and that was back in um, 1600, right? So what's the big deal? We don't believe that way now. Uh, hello? What do you think all this errant doctrine teaching of Romans 13 comes from? Oh, we must, we, we cannot, we must follow the powers that are ordained on us. You can't be involved in government. You can't disagree with government. You have to obey government. Do you realize that's the modern day version of the doctrine of errors called divine right? When Christians and pastors say you can't be involved in politics and you can't speak out about government, God forbid you even discuss disobeying government, when they teach that that is a vi biblical violation, they are teaching the antichrist error of government is your God. So this is not new, people. If you have a pastor that says you cannot be involved in government, if you have a pastor that says you must slavishly submit to all laws, you have a pastor who is not ruled by the Holy Spirit, but ruled by the Antichrist doctrine. Get out of that church. Like, don't even go Sunday to say goodbye. Don't even go Sunday to say goodbye to your pastor. Just go. That church is ruled by the doctrine of Antichrist, and you don't need to be there. So, in those days, he says, passive obedience, non-resistance, the divine hereditary right of kings, and their being accountable to God alone were doctrines generally taught, believed, and practiced. But behold, 
the sudden transformation transition of human affairs. In the very next reign, the people assumed the right of free inquiry into the nature and end of government and the conduct of those who were entrusted with it. Laud and Strafford, who were brought to the block and after the horrors of civil war in which some of the best blood of the nation was spilt as waters upon the ground, they finally called into account, arraigned, adjudged, condemned, and even executed the monarch himself. Now what they're talking about now is Charles I son of James I. During the reign of Charles I, we actually have two civil wars. We have the Bishop Wars that happened to actually come against Charles I, who is bringing tyranny into the church, controlling the church leaders through the crown. Again, trying to reestablish this errant antichrist doctrine of the uh, govern you have to obey government, right? And what we have now are people in the reign of Charles I saying, look, we are not created by kings. We are not owned by kings. And kings who are evil are not to be followed because the Bible demands that we be lawful. If we follow lawless kings, then we're being lawless with them. So, suddenly, from his father to his son, the people are waking up. He says, and for a time, his son held his son and heir. Oh, I'm sorry. And for a time, held his son and heir in exile. The two sons of Charles I, after the death of Oliver Cromwell, reigned in their turns, but by copying after their father, Charles I, being tyrannical tyrants, right? But by copying after their father, their administration of government was grievous to the subjects and infamous abroad. Charles II indeed reigned until he died. See how long we suffered this. But his brother James I... I'm sorry, James II was obliged to abdicate his throne, which made room for William III and his royal consort, Mary, the daughter of the unfortunate James. This was the fate of a race of kings. I want you guys to listen to these words and see if you can understand how this history is being repeated. Not just simply generally, but specifically, not just in in great detail. Listen to this. Apply this. Use critical thinking. Because the CRT idiots say we need to use our critical thinking about history. Ladies and gentlemen, this is critical thinking in history. This is looking at the history as fact, not as a mechanism to rewrite it, but looking at history to learn how things repeat. Watch. Listen to this. This was the fate of a race of kings, bigoted to the greatest degree to the doctrines of slavery and regardless of the natural inherent, divinely hereditary, indefeasible rights of their subjects. Let me just pause here for a second. Samuel Adams is mocking the king right here. 
in this statement, mocking the king, using a turn of the words and mocking the king. Because remember, the king is declaring that he has a divine right to rule. Therefore, the people must listen and obey obediently, without question. But Samuel Adams is saying, no, it's not the king with a divine right. It is the people with a divine right. Let me read that again. Regardless of the natural, inherent, divinely hereditary, and indefeasible rights of their subjects. At the revolution, he's talking about the glorious revolution of 1688, which dethroned Charles II, put William and Mary on the throne, establishing a new segment of the English Constitution called the English Bill of Rights. That's what he's talking about right here. And again, if you don't know this, all of this is at libertyfirstuniversity.com. Seriously, go to Liberty First. If all of this is new and all of this is fascinating to you, go to libertyfirstuniversity.com for less than a cup of coffee a week. You can learn education that somebody should have been teaching you in school that didn't, okay? All right, where are we? At the revolution, the British Constitution was again restored to its original principles declared in the Bill of Rights, which was afterwards passed into a law and stands as a bulwark to the natural rights of subjects. Now, Justice Blackstone is the premier judge of the common law day. He actually wrote the lessons for lawyers in England on how to deal with British common law. And he is now quoting Blackstone. Adams is now quoting Blackstone. Quote, to vindicate these rights, says Mr. Blackstone, when actually violated or attacked. Now listen, there is, I want us to know the progression here. Listen to the progression of the rights. To vindicate these rights, says Mr. Blackstone, when actually violated or attacked, the subjects of England are entitled first to their regular administration and free course of justice in the courts of law. Next, to the right of petitioning the king and parliament for a redress of grievances. First, use the system. Use the system as it's designed. If the system is not working as it's designed, now start petitioning and protesting. That is your right. Petition and protest that the system is not working and start working to get the system working again. Right? So, petitioning the king and parliament for a redress of grievances. Lastly, The last resort, lastly, to the right of having and using arms for self-preservation of and defense, for self-preservation and defense. We are not at the lastly stage in America. Our timeline proves that. We are not at the lastly stage. We are at the petition protest stage. That's where they are. Because you see, we have not exhausted 
our petition protest. We are actually just now beginning to petition protest, especially considering that our greatest power comes through, listen very carefully, comes from the protest of the states themselves. Our states have a duty and authority to protest federal government's lawless use of power by refusing to comply with their lawless decrees. That's the role of the state. If you don't live in a state that's doing that, then you must realize you either, you have one of two choices. You either work in your state to get them to do their duty to defend your rights, or you have to give in and go somewhere else. Why not, if, if you don't believe, if you live in, if you're stuck in California, if you're stuck in a part of Washington that you can't control, if you're stuck in Oregon or some other state where you can't, New York, where you can't control what's going on, either get control or leave those states and go to a state that believes as you do and shore up the power of that state. We always need better liberty-minded people in our states. Absolutely need them. So here we go. Last defense. The, these he calls, he's talking about Blackstone, these Blackstone calls auxiliary subordinate rights which serve principally as barriers to protect and maintain inviolate the three great and primary rights. There are three great primary rights that belong inherently to every single human being. Are you ready? Three. And here they are. Personal security, personal liberty, and private property. Notice he didn't say national security. He said personal security. The, the most important three basic rights being individual to the person, personal security, personal liberty, and private property. And that having arms for their defense, Blackstone tells us, is a public allowance under due restrictions of the natural right of resistance and self-preservation when the sanctions of society and laws are found insufficient to restrain the violence of oppression. I wish that we could understand. I really do. I wish that we could understand. Oppression is violent. When government oppresses your personal security, your personal liberty, and your private property, that is a violent act. And we have to see it that way. Or we'll never unite enough, organize enough to stand up together. Now listen to what he says. This is so amazing. This is so bone chilling. I love this part. Listen. How little do those persons attend to the rights of the Constitution if they know anything about them? If you don't know anything about your Constitution, you're not going to be attending to your rights. Hello, that's why Liberty First University is so important. 
If you don't know anything about your constitution, how will you know how to protect your personal rights? How will you know to redress? How will you know to do this? How will you know what to do? He says, these people who know little about our Constitution. Remember, he's not talking about the U.S. Constitution. Contrary to English education for my for my, uh, ang- my my English people that are listening, my British subjects that are listening, I know you're not subjects anymore, but the British people who are listening now, you have been lied to just as much as the American people when you're told you don't have a constitution. Because I'm reading from the people who are your forefathers, who created our America, who declare over and over and again, you have a written constitution. It's written and passed. He said in this letter, it's passed into law. So don't let them tell you you don't have a constitution, my English friends. You absolutely have a constitution. They just don't want you to know it. And how little will they attend to the constitution if they don't know anything about it? He says, these people who don't know anything about the constitution are finding fault with a late vote of this town, calling upon the inhabitants to to provide themselves with arms for their defense at any time. The wacko loyalists of the king, the ignorant people to their rights and to their constitution are criticizing those in society who are recognizing that there's a problem in government and part of controlling government is keeping and bearing arms. He says, Everyone knows that the exercise of military power is forever dangerous to civil rights. Let me say that again. Everyone knows that the exercise of military power is forever dangerous to civil rights. And we have had recent instances of violences that have been offered to private subjects and the last week even to a magistrate in the execution of his office. Such violences are no more than might have been expected from military troops, a power which is apt enough at all times to take a wanton lead even in the midst of a civil society, but more especially so when they are led to believe that they are become necessary to all a spirit of rebellion and to preserve peace and good order. First thing that I want to clarify here is this. Our founders believed that a standing army was a force organized by government to keep control of the people. I think part of the problem is the use of the word army. Because in America today, we have this idea that army is the U.S. Army. You know, the power of the army, the uniformed people who fight overseas. No. In the minds of our founders, any force raised by Congress would be considered a standing army. So let me just be clear about this, okay? When the EPA has a SWAT team, that is a standing army. When the FBI has police, when the Department of Homeland Security has police, when the Department of Education has a SWAT team, 
That is a standing army under the definition of our founder's definition of a standing army. It is a force at the command of Congress ruling over the people. So make no mistake, America is under rule of a standing army because our executive agencies have free reign to enforce laws by and regulations that are unconstitutional by force. So let's be clear. These federal offices that have, I, I was, where was I the other day? I don't remember where I was. I think it was in an airport. There was a, uh, or my goodness, I can't remember. Walking somewhere, it must have been an airport. There was a Department of Homeland Security person there. And on their uniform said, Department of Homeland Security Police. Department of Homeland Security Police. What in the heck does that mean? And please show me article, section, and clause where the Department of Homeland Security can exist and where they can have police. No. Police are something that citizens employ to the defense and preservation of their three most important rights, personal safety, personal liberty, and private property. So when Adams is talking here about these troops, he is talking about what you see the federal government walking around with police. Those are troops in America on your soil. That's a standing army, America. That is a standing army. And listen to what he says. He says, they are apt to take a wanton lead. They are apt to be increasing their power and abusive in their power, especially when they are led to believe they are necessary to, to quell a rebellion and to preserve peace and good order. You see, the whole narrative of January 6th and sedition, January 6th and insurrection is not about anything but creating a mentality in America that there is some kind of peace and good order and rebellion that the federal government is necessary in subduing. It's simply not true. So he says, but there are some persons who would, if possibly they could, persuade the people never to make use of their constitutional rights or terrify them from doing it. Are you hearing that? There are people, he said, in our society and in our government that will tell people, oh, no, no, don't worry about those rights. You've got nothing to do with those rights. And if you try to defend your rights, if you try to exercise your rights, we're going to punish you. You need to be afraid to exercise your rights. I'm going to read that sentence again because it is so clear and it is so relative, relevant today. You've got to hear this. There are some persons who would, if possibly they could, persuade the people never to make use of their rights 
or terrify them from doing so doing it. No wonder that a resolution of this town to keep arms for its defense should be represented as represented represented as having a bottom a secret intention to oppose the landing of the king's troops. When those very persons who gave it this coloring had before represented the people's petitioning their sovereign as proceeding from a factious and rebellious spirit. They're lying about our size of right. Oh, the only reason they want to own guns is because they don't like Biden. The only reason they want to own guns is because they're racist. The only reason they don't want to, they want to own guns is because they want to oppress people. This is the same story they were saying in 1769 when our founders were trying to educate others on the exercise and preservation of their rights. And look at what he says. Back when we were petitioning, these same people said, oh, they're only complaining about government because they hate Democrats. These are the Republican talking points. Why are you all stuck with Republican talking points? You can be talking about rights. You can be talking about the Constitution. You can be talking about the natural rights of the people. And today they're saying the same thing. It is the same thing over and over again. They're talking about it from a a, a factional perspective and, and they, they just want to overthrow the government. No, no, no. You're overthrowing the government with your lawlessness and we want to preserve our government in its proper form by enforcing the Constitution. John Adams finishes by saying, such are the times we have fallen into. Again, I was reading from the Boston Gazette, 27th of February, 1769, a letter written by Samuel Adams. You see, we have to be the people who educate, who organize, and activate. We are the ones who have to get educated on the proper restraints of government. The check and balance on the federal government is not limited to a hope and plea that the, that the branches of federal government will check themselves. The real restraint on federal power out of control exists most powerfully at the state and local level. And that's why you have to have a sheriff that will defend your rights regardless of what the law says. Because remember, your sheriff is not, a, is not a blind enforcer of the law. Your sheriff takes an oath to the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state. That's his oath. Your sheriff must follow the Constitution by disobeying laws that are contrary to the Constitution. The lack of, of knowledge is really the source of all the political problems in America today. People say it's voter fraud. You wouldn't have voter fraud if people were educated in, in the constitutions and government. You wouldn't have apathy if the people were educated in the constitutions and government. You wouldn't, you would still have immoral people, but the, the ways to control more immoral people would be well known to a larger group of people. So the immoral people may have a day, but they won't have a year.
we must be an active restraint on government through state and local authority. And when state and local authority becomes tyrannical, then we have to do as James Otis Jr. did, as our founders did in their commerce. Remember the Liberty Commerce that we created in 1759? We as a people must stand up and say, we will not comply. Now the power is in unity. If we have to stand alone, then that's what we have to do. Because alone we stand before God. And alone we'll have no excuse. But if we want to be successful and we want to succeed, then we must stand in unity together. And that must be something that we understand is the most powerful restraint on government, standing together in knowledge and wisdom. Samuel Adams said this, no people will tamely surrender their liberties nor be easily subdued when knowledge is diffused and virtue is preserved. He said, on the contrary, when the people become universally ignorant and debauched in their manners, they will sink underneath their own weight without the aid of foreign invaders. America is sinking. Not because of the globalists. Not because of the Marxists, not because of the revolutionary anarchists. America is sinking is because, because we as a people have been trained into a universal ignorance that allows these factions to have power over us. It's time to deny the lies and start learning the truth. And the only way we're going to do this is if we just simply do it. Just do it. Just do it. And that's the key. So once again, I want to encourage you, go to libertyfirstuniversity.com, start your education today so that you can help train others and organize. Go to chrisannhall.com, start, start listening to our archives of our show. We're always teaching. We're always doing something to educate you about what's going on in government. We're not here because we have nothing better to do with our time. We're here because we love America. We love our constitution and because we love our children. That's why we're here. And we want them to have a better tomorrow. And we want you to be able to help us to do that. So I want to thank you guys for joining us today. Thank you guys for being a part of this show. By being here, you are a part of this show. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Thank you for being liberty first minded people. And JC and I, We'll be more than honored and pleased to see you tomorrow. God bless.